Good morning. It's a, it's a wonderful day. Got up yesterday and you, you hear the pellets on your, I have a metal roof, so you hear the pellets just kind of tick, 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 tick. And then you look outside and you say, hmm, there's ice. Five minutes later, there's snow. You know, a little white thing. Then 15 minutes later, the entire area is covered. And you go, God's good. Very good. It's, uh, it's nice to see that, that, that clean white sheet over everything. You just kind of go, this is new. So just for the newness that God blessed us with yesterday. Today we're going to read Mark 5, 21 through 43. If you will join me as we read God's word. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, came up and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, putting, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. 
May the Lord add a blessing to the hearing and to the reading of his holy word. Well, the last time my family and I went to the state fair, we didn't spend the bulk of our time in the midway or on the rides or sitting in cars or looking at livestock or shows. We became captivated by a cooking demonstration. And there was this person hawking overpriced cookware, making audacious claims about its incredible nonstick properties. And then he would demonstrate it in a radical way. Or its amazing non-scorch capabilities. And then he would put on a display of someone that the, these things couldn't be scorched even by someone like myself. And then he would take out this cutware and he would make this bold, audacious promise about the things that it would cut through without dulling. And then he would bring forth aluminum cans and variety of objects and prove to us that his promises were true because he was asking us to entrust him with a ludicrous amount of money, which we didn't. <laughs> but it was a really compelling demonstration because when someone makes bold claims and expects you to give a lot, they need to be able to demonstrate and display the credibility and the authenticity of who they are and what they're claiming. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this section of the Gospel of Mark. As he's been going out preaching the Gospel, that the time is at hand, the kingdom, or the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, and therefore we should repent and believe in the Gospel, he's now teaching with authority unlike the scribes. He's casting out demons as a demonstration of the power and authenticity of that teaching. He's making claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And only Yahweh is Lord of the Sabbath. He's making claims to be able to forgive sins. And only God forgives sins. So now we've moved from merely this is a powerful prophet to this is now someone who's able to perform miracles to this is someone making claims that only God can do. This Jewish carpenter is claiming to be God. And so what he's doing in the section of the Gospel of Mark is demonstrating his divinity. And so when they're on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes and he's roused, he, with a word, calms the winds and the waves that only God can do. And when he goes into uh, the Gadarene territory and he meets a Gentile who's filled not with one but a legion of demons, he casts them out with a word to demonstrate his divine authority over the spiritual realm. And now in the concluding two miracles of this section, he is going to demonstrate his authority over disease, even chronic disease incurable disease. He is going to demonstrate his authority even over death itself to prove his claims to divinity, to support his message of a gospel of forgiveness for those who will repent of their sins and give themselves to Jesus Christ so that we will entrust ourselves to him and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in Mark chapter 5 beginning in verse 21 which I invite you to turn to now. The text begins that when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, and that's crossing over the Sea of Galilee from Gadarene or Gerasene back into what is likely Capernaum. Uh, we don't know, but that's where he left from. That's likely where he's returning to. And a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. It's interesting that there was a crowd of Gentiles saying, go away from us, so he did. And now there's a crowd of Jews saying, come back to us, which he did. And I'm struck by the remarkable compassion of Christ, given the unreasonable demands of the people around him. Think what's gone back in the last day. 
Jesus taught all day from a boat on the seashore the parables of the kingdom. And then when evening came, he crossed over the lake, which would have been in good times a two to three hour row, but the storm came, which would have meant maybe five or six hours crossing. He wakes up, calms the storm, he arrives, and then as soon as the boat lands, he's rushed by this madman from the tombs who's filled with this legion of demons. And then the Gentiles come and they send him back across the lake that he just crossed. He's tired. It's been an exhausting 24 hours. And I can just imagine if I was one of the apostles in the boat, the sigh I would have given, uh, the curse I would have uttered. <laughs> if I were to Jesus, I probably would have bent down low, put my cloak on Peter and said, buy me some time. I'm going to go get a shower and a rest. <laughs> but the compassion of Christ to always be willing to receive those who are in need is remarkable. And so he stays by the shore because it can better accommodate the crowds more so than a building or in the narrow streets. And as he's there, like he's resuming his teaching, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up to him and on seeing him, fell at his feet. So a synagogue is a Jewish house of worship that when because of their sin, Israel was evicted from the land, they formed local houses of worship called synagogues, which is a transliteration of the Greek term for an assembling or a gathering. And they would have been led either by a president, a ruler of a synagogue, or a group of elders. And so this is likely one of the elders of the synagogue, much like an elder in a church today. He's a prominent figure. He's a respected figure. He's a known religious man. And he comes up and he falls down on Jesus' feet. Not because he just happened to see him, probably because he was looking for him, because the circumstances are such that we're going to see that there had to be a compelling reason for him to leave home. So Jesus came back, the word came back, the prophet is returned, he leaves his home and he goes, and with no concern for his dignity or public image, this prominent religious figure bows at the feet of this Jewish carpenter. And he implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter's at the point of, at the point of death. Now we're going to find out later in the text that she's 12 years old. Now she's not that little, but probably our daughters are always daddy's little girl. Um, we find out from the Gospel of Luke that it's his only daughter, which makes it even more poignant. And she's not just ill, she's on the verge of dying, which is why he was willing to leave her bedside and to come in desperation to the one person who might be able to help. And he implores him, saying, please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. So the synagogue official would have seen the miracles performed in the synagogue there in Capernaum. He would have seen Jesus heal many ill people of many different illnesses. He would have seen the paralytic who was lowered from the ceiling with a word be restored and take up his pallet and walk and go. And if anyone could help, Jesus could help. And so he goes to him, he falls at his knees, he begs him, implores him, please come. And Jesus does, which he wouldn't have done if he didn't have that authority, if he didn't have that ability. He wouldn't have set himself up to be uh, publicly shown to be unable to do these things. But Jesus is able. He does have that authority. He does have that compassion. And so he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him pressing in on him. So you can see the synagogue official rushing home. Can you hurry? Can you pick it up, my daughter? And the crowd pressing in, pushing in, because they want to see the miracle firsthand. 
But the journey to the home is interrupted in verse 25 by a woman. And Mark goes into a very vivid description of this woman's plight. So here's this crowd. They're all pushing in. But the camera zooms in on one person who is pushing and shoving and making her way to Jesus because she had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Now, the text doesn't name the condition, but uh, I consulted our Dr. Fred, our local gynecologist, who says that this is likely adenomyosis. Is that approximately right? All right, adenomyosis, which is a growth, a growth of the uterus lining into the uterus muscular wall, which would have called an enlarging of the uterus. And some of the symptoms that this would have caused would be heavy, prolonged bleeding, severe cramping, uh, the Mayo Clinic describes it as knife-like stabs of pain, chronic pelvic pains. There would have been chronic anemia due to blood loss causing fatigue, foggy thinking. It would have affected fertility. So on a physical level, this was painful, this was debilitating, this was distressing, but that wasn't the limit of her suffering. It was also socially isolating. According to the Levitical laws, a woman during her period or during her cycle would be ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean and unable to attend temple. Well, because of the nature of this woman's dilemma, she would have been unable to go to temple. She would have been unable to go to synagogue. She would have been unwelcome among the community. And according to Fred, she would have been isolated by the women in the community likewise because of the embarrassing, shameful nature of the illness. It would have created a barrier to marital intimacy if there was one. It would have caused fertility issues. Craig Keener, who's an expert on first century Jewish culture says, since the woman could not bear children in this state and Jewish men often divorced women who were incapable of bearing, this woman likely had never been married or if the sickness began after marriage had been divorced and forced to remain single. In a society where single celibate women could not easily earn much income, the illness affected virtually every area of her life. Um, Fred's description was, this condition would have occupied her life. This wasn't just something that was intermittent. This had plagued her for a dozen years. And it wasn't just something that you could accept and live with. And so she sought treatment. And the text says that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. So she sought many physicians who would have tried to have made a diagnosis, who would have prescribed a treatment. She would have tried it, and the treatment was not pleasant because it was something that had to be endured. So she went to another doctor, went through another round of examinations, went through another treatment, another prescription, another thing to endure, and this went on with much and with many physicians. Uh, it's no indictment on doctors. The only way to accurately diagnose this is to biopsy the uterus after it's been removed. The only way to get a likely diagnosis is through an MRI or through a sonogram. So there was no way they could have known what was going on. And in going to all these physicians, she had spent all that she had. She had bankrupted herself trying to find a cure because this was a desperate situation. And it was worth giving every shot no matter how far-fetched. And despite that, she was not helped at all. And in fact, had grown worse. Um, there's some people here that have chronic afflictions or loved ones with chronic afflictions. 
and you know the discouraging dynamic of going to another doctor, trying another treatment, spending the money, enduring whatever it is, and then finding out it was fruitless. And then you start the whole thing over again, and again, and again, and again. And hers wasn't just fruitless and expensive, she was worse off than she began. This woman was desperate. She was in physical distress, she was in social distress, she was in relational distress, she was in mental distress, emotional distress. But then she heard about Jesus, which likely means she hadn't seen his miracles firsthand because she wasn't welcome in the synagogue when he was helping all these other people. But she heard about a man who could do what no other man could do. And so, hearing that he was in town, knowing that she wouldn't be welcome to approach his face because she might be shunned, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Um, she had a faith, likely a superstitious faith, but it was enough that she's trying to just get close enough. She doesn't want to touch his body because he might notice her, but just the cloak, just the edge of his cloak, and I know he can help me when no one else can. And he did. In verse 29 it says, Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Uh, this wasn't another maddest man who gave a prescription. There was no uh, procedure to undergo. There was no ritual to perform. There was no even formal laying on of hands. Jesus is God. He is omnipotent. And the mere touch of faith was such that she was healed immediately. And simultaneously, Jesus perceived that in himself the power proceeding from him had gone forth. And he turned around in the crowds and said, who touched my garments? So, again, if you've ever been to a concert or an athletic event or Black Friday, <laughs> where there's just this mass of people pushing in and shoving, and the apostles say, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus knew a particular person touched him. And, and this isn't apparent in the English, but it is in the Greek where they have uh, pronouns and participles that are based on gender. He knew that it was a female who touched him and not just anyone. And so it says that he looked around to see the woman. He knew precisely who had come, why they had come, what had happened. And he turns his eyes to her and he's going to call her out for a particular reason. He could have just simply let her leave anonymously with a blessing. But she would have left with a superstitious faith that what I have is the plastic Jesus that if you know Cool Hand Luke, that he puts on his dashboard of his car, or this is just a relic, or this is just a, a magic. But it's not as though the power emanates from him and everybody that came close and touched gets miraculously healed. There was something in this woman's heart that Jesus wants brought forth for the benefit of the crowd and for us. And so, the woman, fearing and trembling, she's called out in public. And by the way, by being unclean and touching the rabbi, she made him unclean, according to Jewish law, which might have then incurred the ire of the synagogue official because this might have disrupted his ability to heal the daughter. And so she's frightened. But she comes down, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him like the demoniac, like the synagogue official, falling down at his feet and told him the whole truth. Um, Charles Spurgeon has a sermon on this text called Tell It All. And he talks about 
This woman, in coming to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, didn't have to have a prepared speech, didn't need a lawyer to be her advocate, didn't have to have her arguments laid out before her. All you had to do was confess. But you had to confess it all. That her only plea was her misery, but that was enough before a merciful God. And so Spurgeon urges his audience at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, when you come to God, tell it all. Because he knows it anyway. And he knows every shameful thing in our past. And he knows every wicked deed that we've done. And he knows every compromise and every concession and every, everything. And so we would be foolish to try to hide it from him. And so when we come and fall at his feet, we tell it all. Because he knows it all. And he loves us despite it all. And he's willing to forgive it all. Because he died for it all. Wasn't that a beautiful line in that song? None but Jesus can do the sinner good. But he does, and he can, and he wants to. And look at the way that Jesus comforts this frightened woman. He first of all addresses her as daughter. It's the only person in the Gospels that Jesus calls daughter. So the synagogue official was concerned about his daughter. Jesus was concerned about his daughter, even though he was likely younger than her. Uh, Papa Mel will refer to people around him as son. And so when you call Papa Mel, I'll say, I love you, Mel. And Mel will say, I love you, son. And uh, that does me a lot of good, Mel. And so in this endearing, affirming term that Jesus welcomes her, he commends her faith. It wasn't just that she touched a magical garment. Again, this isn't some magical, mystical relic that you go to. This was a faith that she had. She believed that this person could make her well if she could just get close enough. And he did. Because God doesn't want us just filling the dashboards of our car and our homes and our closets and our necklaces with relics and jewelry and ornaments and figurines that somehow if we rub it or pray to it, it brings magical power to our life. Uh, Antonio, I remember when y'all were trying to sell your home, one of your relatives buried a Catholic statuette in the backyard to help promote the sale. I forget which particular god or, or saint was the... but. A relative came from San Antonio or McKinney and buried a statue in their yard to get a good sale quickly. That's not how it works. And so Jesus calls her up to instruct the crowd and us. It's faith. It's belief. It's trust in a particular person that he can and he will and he does if we come to him and we tell it all and ask him. And then he reassures her that she's been made well. That it's not just a temporary alleviation of symptoms. That there wasn't an initial healing, but because she did it surreptitiously, that now he's going to snatch it from her and make it worse. No, no, you've been made well. This is a cure. This is a healing. Then he sends her off with a blessing. Go in peace. Physical peace. Made well. Whole. Emotional social, relational. He says it aloud so that all the crowd in the small community would know this woman needs to be brought back in. This woman needs to be reembased. She's been shunned long enough and you need to bring her back into this fold. And he sends her off with a blessing and reassures her by telling her, be healed of your affliction. You don't have to fear about it returning. You don't have to wonder, am I just in remission and there'll be a relapse. There was a healing of this woman. It's a beautiful picture of our Lord's compassion, not just to a respected, prominent person like a synagogue official, 
not just to a wealthy, affluent person who might be able to make it worth his while, but to a shunned, broke, desperate, unclean woman. Jesus loved her as much as anyone and was willing to help anyone who comes to him because he doesn't care about class and he doesn't care about race and he doesn't care about gender and he doesn't care about money. We can't bring him anything, whoever we are. He just wants us to come. And all who come, he receives and he saves. It's a beautiful picture of salvation that none of us have any merit. She couldn't offer him money. She couldn't offer him anything. She had nothing meritorious in and of herself. She was bankrupt. She was destitute. But what she could do was appeal to his mercy and he is a merciful God. And when any of us come to God, whoever, whoever we are, whatever we've done, when we come to Christ and fall at his feet and say, I need help. I can't help myself. When we confess it all and ask him to save us, he does. And it's as simple as asking and as easy as receiving. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We don't have to go through a particular person or priest other than Christ. We don't have to do anything. We can't do anything. It's all been done by Christ, and he's that merciful. And you have to think that Jairus is somewhat reassured, right? He can do it. He can help my daughter. He just helped this woman. And there had to have been this flash of confidence in Jairus until a group arrives from his house. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking to the woman, a group of people came from the house of the synagogue official and said to him, your daughter's died. Why bother the teacher anymore? So imagine now Jairus' emotions of the sense of urgency can I get to Jesus in time? Will he come? Of relief, he's coming. Of maybe even hope, he healed this woman. To now, this distressing news of my daughter died. While I was away, I wasn't even at her side to be there. And it's because of this woman, who again, in a small community with a single synagogue, he knew, I'm the holy man. I'm the righteous one. I'm the one with God's pleasure, and this unclean woman, he helped her instead of my daughter? And then you have to imagine some righteous indignation against Jesus. She's been sick 12 years. You could have healed her after. You could have come back to my house, helped my daughter, and then taken care of her. Can you imagine if you call 911, there's been an emergency, there's been an accident, you call the ambulance, and the ambulance is too late because they've stopped to get a cat out of the tree or to help someone with a blood pressure test or to do something that was a minor matter that could have waited. And the anger and the frustration and the anger. What were you doing? And Jesus, either overhearing or ignoring their words, the Greek can mean either case, said, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Note again the emphasis on faith. The point of the passage is the divine authority of Christ demonstrated in the healing, in the raising, so that we will place our faith in him. There were other sick people in the crowds that were not healed that day. Jesus didn't come to heal every sick person on the planet. There were other people who were either dying or would die that were not going to receive the miracle this girl will. Because Jesus didn't come to forestall death for every single person. These are demonstrations of his person, of his authority, of his identity, so that we will place our faith in him. 
for the one-day resurrection and restoration that the Messiah is coming to give. But he goes, and he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. This is the first time we see three of the apostles peeled off for a special privilege, like we're going to see in the Transfiguration. The twelve don't see it, only these three. When Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and wants a special prayer from a small group, these are the three that are going to come aside. And by the way, Peter, being one of these three, is the one who is telling Mark his gospel. So this is an eyewitness account of Peter relayed through his spiritual son, Mark. Which is why we have what are called historical presents, where the verbs are past tense, but they're intended to be communicated in the present. So now the text says in verse 38, and they were coming to the house of the synagogue official, and they saw the commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. Um, there's a very open display of grief in the Arabic culture, in the Semitic culture, in the Jewish culture at this time. Matthew says that there were flute players, and so there would be professional mourners who would help a family give a proper mourning, and so they were likely in wait, knowing that the daughter's hour was near, and so this is a large crowd with a very loud demonstration. And entering into the house, Jesus said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is only asleep. And they began laughing at him. They deride him. They mocked him. They scorned him. He hasn't even seen the girl. And he's going to make a diagnosis of her condition. And sending the mockers out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own three companions, and the six of them entered the room where the little girl was. And in verse 41 it says, Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. This wasn't a babe, this was a young lady. Now we have two Old Testament precedents for someone being brought back to life. One associated with Elijah, one associated with Elisha, the two great miracle prophets of the Old Testament. And in both instances, they spread themselves out on a body, one of them three times, another spread him out, walked around the room, they appealed to God, and God did this great miracle, but nothing like what Jesus did that with a word can say, arise, and she does. Now this is actually the second resuscitation that Jesus has done. Earlier, and this is told in the Gospel of Mark, there was a funeral procession in the town of Nain and a widow had lost her only son and Jesus stops the procession, touches the coffin and tells the boy to arise and he does. Because Jesus is Lord of life and death. In John chapter 11, you remember he stands at the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. There's no ritual, there's no even praying to God because Jesus is the God-man, God in the flesh. He has the authority and he uses it with the word and the girl rises. And then it says that he returned. Uh, sorry. That he told him to give her something to eat. She may have been weakened in her estate, may have been a reassurance that she was, in fact, alive and not just a ghost, like after Jesus' own resurrection. This is the greatest miracle performed by Christ thus yet in the Gospel of Mark. But it's of a theme of what's been going on in this section of these dramatic, powerful demonstrations of his authority 
not simply so that we would think that Jesus will calm every storm. He didn't and doesn't. He demonstrated that he was able to have complete authority over a legion of demons, but that doesn't mean that all the evil is removed from this world yet. He healed this woman's ailment because he has that ability, but he doesn't heal every ailment yet. And he does have complete authority over life and death. Not that he will postpone every funeral, but he gives us the hope and the assurance through his own death and resurrection that those who come to him and confess their sins and place their trust in Christ will rise one day and will live forever on a new earth in a glorified body where sin and sickness and death will be abolished forever and forever. That's the point of this passage. This isn't intended to say if you just have enough faith or give a large enough contribution to a particular preacher and name and claim health and wealth that God will give that to you in this life. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news of Christianity. Our hope is not in this world, but the world to come. Our hope is not in earthly riches, but in heavenly treasures. Our hope is not in a prolonged existence of this life, but in an eternal life to come, because death will be banished. That's the gospel. And the reason for these miracles is to show that Jesus does have that authority so that we will believe his message and embrace it while there's time. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't go to God for prayers, with prayers, when loved ones are sick, when it seems like an untimely death. We do go to God, we do pray, and many times he is merciful. But in his timing, he is allotted to each person a particular number of days. And when those days are expired, God in his wisdom will bring each child home. And we have to trust him with them, as painful and hard as that is. And I think when we get to heaven, the challenge will be, or the challenge now that will be revealed in heaven, is that we just don't see things appropriately. That the reality is, we want this world more than the world to come, so we cling to it. But when we actually see what that world is and see this world revealed for what it is, we'll wonder, why did we cling to that so long? We'll look at the things that we desired in this life and wonder why we lingered so long to cling to it when better things awaited. Uh, I remember my dad's uh, reserve unit was called up and he served in Vietnam. And towards the end of his tour, uh, and I was actually born while dad was in Nam, and towards the end of his tour, dad had the opportunity to fly in a jet. And dad always wanted to be a pilot. Thought, man, what a great opportunity. But then his flight was canceled. <laughs> and they said, well, we can reschedule it and you can fly on our jet. But because of the rescheduling, he would have to re-enlist for another tour. And dad thought about it. <laughs> he thought, man, a jet. And then he thought better of it <laughs> and thought, am I nuts? I'm going to put myself another 10 months in Nam and expose myself to all the dangers, the threats, the sacrifices, and be away from my wife and away from my son that I've never met for a jet ride? What, was I, what am I thinking? Unfortunately, Dad didn't do that. God loves us too much to keep us away from Him forever. Jesus prays to the Father that we will be where He is at because He wants us home. And he doesn't want us away from him forever. He loves us too much for that. 
He loves us too much to simply leave in these fallen, suffering bodies forever. He doesn't want just to perpetuate healing in life. He wants to give us a glorified body. You wouldn't want a caterpillar to be a caterpillar any longer than it could because you want it to emerge into what it's intended to be, right? And so we will be someday. My wife was sharing last night, I'm so ready for Jesus to come. And I'm not just sad for the wickedness of this world. I'm sad for the sin of my own life. And God loves us too much to leave us in this fallen flesh, in this fallen estate for any longer than we have to be until our service for him is done. And that he wants us perfectly conformed to the image of Christ so that we can receive and enjoy and reciprocate the love of God fully as we were made and redeemed to do. It doesn't make the grief and the sadness any less. We weep. And it doesn't make the pain and distress any less real. It's distressing and we pray. But we also know that Jesus died a premature death. And his own prayer for deliverance went unanswered. Because God's will was for him to accomplish our redemption through his death. And we don't know how God is going to use the suffering and the trials of this life and even the death that seemed premature from our perspective. Uh, I have a good friend of mine that in 2010, um, his wife was suffering from back pain. She went to a chiropractor, didn't help. So she went to a doctor and it was diagnosed as stage four bone cancer. And earlier in her life, uh, she had had melanoma and they had prayed for healing and God had granted healing and granted her another 25 years of life. But in the second time, it, uh, it was very advanced. It moved very quickly, and she passed very quickly. And when they went to his pastor for prayer, he said, I'll pray for your wife's healing as long as you are willing to accept God's healing, whether it comes through medicine, miracle, or resurrection. Think about that. I will pray for your wife's healing, and God will heal her as his daughter, either through medicine or through a miracle, or through resurrection. We will all be healed someday. But not all of us are healed every time now. And we have to trust God's will for that. But what this passage demonstrates, what God authenticates through the resurrection of His Son is, He does have that authority. He does have that ability. And He will give that to all who come to Him and believe in Him. Martin Luther had six children after he married an ex-nun named Katharina von Bora. And their third child and second daughter, Magdalena, took ill when she was 13 years old. And she wasn't going to recover from that. And so Martin Luther prayed at her bedside, I love her a lot, but good God, if your will is to take her, I give her to you with great pleasure. I love my daughter. I don't want her to go. But if it's your will that this is her time, I give her to you. And then he asked his daughter, my little Magdalena, my little girl, soon you will not be with me. Will you be happy without your father? And she answered, yes, dear father, if that's what God wants. And she responded in faith and trust. As they placed her in the coffin, Luther's recorded as saying, ah, sweet Lynchen, which was his nickname for, God says you will rise again and you will shine like a star. Yes, like the sun. And I am happy in my spirit, but my earthly form is very sad. And then it's recorded that as they nailed the nails in the coffin of his 13-year-old daughter, the Luther shouted out, 
Hammer away. Hammer away. But come the resurrection, she will rise again. And that's our hope. Um, this was a hard text to prepare for in some ways because there are families in our midst that are dealing with very hard things. And there are little girls that are sick. And there are little girls that are fighting for their lives. And there are those that uh, are, are, are walking through that valley of the shadow of death right now. And I don't want to be tried about this. And don't just simply say, come and believe and she'll be healed. Uh, I remember the first time I, I remember this text, I was in college and my roommate, his mother was diagnosed with cancer. And I came across that verse, don't be afraid, only believe in the context of miraculous healing. And so I showed it to him, and I told him that. And it was her time, and she passed. And as I've come to know more about the Bible and understand the gospel more, it's not a promise of infinite number of healings and infinite number of ailments. Thank God, because who would want to be here forever in this estate, in this world? Nor is it a promise of instant resurrection every time a death occurs you have to think that those who have experienced resuscitation would resent that. That Lazarus, having been in the presence of God, now gets called back three days later and goes, really? <laughs> really? I, I was there? And then one uh, commentator said that you have to imagine that when Lazarus' next death occurred, that he goes, oh, not this part again. <laughs> I know what's on the other side, but not this part again. But that woman that was healed of this affliction later died of another one. And this little girl that was brought to life this time wasn't brought to life the next time. But they will be, as we will be. Because the point of the passage is that Jesus is who he claims to be, God. And he has the authority over life and death. And coming to him and entrusting ourselves to him, we will rise with him someday, come the resurrection. And that is our hope. And it's available to any who will receive it. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for the good news of the gospel. And we confess that all we know is this world. Paul was able to look to the other side and say, I know that the sufferings of this present life are worthy to be compared with the glories to come. But we haven't been given that privilege, most of us, presumably. And so all we know is this life. And we cling to it but we're reminded every day in the paper, there's an entire section reminding us that there are those who passed that day that week. We drive by hospitals that remind us there are those in desperate circumstances. We have medication cabinets filled with vitamins and meds trying to prolong this life. In a thousand different ways, we're reminded that we're mortal. And we will all die someday. But the promise of the gospel is resurrection on the other side of arising someday into a new world where there is no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because all those former things will have been put aside and we will be in a glorified body that the seed will have died and emerged in a new form that is eternal and imperishable and perpetually healthy and vital and vibrant and that there will be no more sin and no more death and no more wickedness, wicked people, wicked spirits, but we will live in the presence of love himself forever and forever. 
So we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We pray that you would help that be our hope when afflictions and trials come and when eventually we face death itself. Let us put our hope and trust in the one who conquered death, Jesus Christ. Amen.